Welcome to the USMLE Step 2 Success Podcast. I'm Dr. Rajani Kata, author of The Successful Matchbook, and in this podcast, I share clinical cases with targeted teaching points. This podcast is not affiliated in any way with the National Board of Medical Examiners, and cases and teaching points are not meant to serve as an official study guide or medical guidance. I've been a faculty member for over 20 years, and I've advised hundreds of residency applicants. I know how important standardized test scores are in the application process, although I always remind my students that they're just one piece of the application puzzle. If you'd like to learn more on how to succeed in the residency match, you can sign up for a free 100-page excerpt of The Successful Matchbook on our website, thesuccessfulmatch.com. Ethical cases can be really challenging, but they're an important set of questions for the USMLE exam. The NBME wants to make sure that our future US physicians are familiar with the ethical issues that they may confront and that they also know the basic underlying ethical principles that help us respond to these challenging situations. I remember watching an episode of the show ER. There was a great show back in its day, although for a while I had a hard time watching it because I was already stressed out by cases I was seeing in the hospital, and the show ER just managed to raise my cortisol levels even higher. But one of the episodes I watched really stuck with me. It was the case of a woman who had developed symptoms of a sexually transmitted disease. Upon testing, it was found that she had syphilis. She begged the team not to confront her husband with the diagnosis. If this was your case, what would be the next best step? Would it be to honor her wishes and maintain her patient confidentiality? Would it be to inform the health department? Or would it be to refer to the ethics committee? Before I answer that question, I want to give you a highlight of the issues that we're going to be discussing in this episode. So we will delve further into the issue of patient privacy and when you might breach confidentiality. Another area that you may be tested on is the balance between patient autonomy versus beneficence. So it'll be important to learn the meaning of those terms. Another area that you'll need to learn is about advanced directives and living wills. You'll have to be able to define those and what the utility of those are. Another area that you'll need to learn about is the importance of determining the patient's last known wishes. And if these are not known, how do you proceed with decision making? And then the other question that we'll ask is, what procedures does a DNR, or do not resuscitate order, cover? So, back to the case of the woman in the emergency room who had developed symptoms of a sexually transmitted disease and was just diagnosed with syphilis. In this case, the correct answer would not be to honor her wishes and maintain her patient confidentiality. Rather, the correct answer is to inform the health department. This case focuses on issues of patient privacy, but it also touches upon the need in our society to balance between 
personal privacy and public good. So the whole issue of privacy is incredibly important in medical ethics. Privacy is considered a subset of patient autonomy, which means that patients get to decide not only what medical procedures are done to them, but also what kind of information is shared with others. Patient privacy is also a huge legal concern for physicians. I still remember when HIPAA was passed, and HIPAA stands for the Health Information Portability and Accountability Act. This act meant that legal consequences would occur if those who had access to protected patient health information did not keep this information confidential. With HIPAA, the general rule is that most of the information about patient's case, including the patient's diagnosis, test results, any planned treatments, those information can only be shared with others if the patient has explicitly given permission for that release of information, and ideally done so in writing. So, quick question. If a patient's husband was to call your office and request the test results that you performed last week, could you release that information given that this is the patient's spouse? The correct answer is that no, you could not release that information even to a spouse unless your patient had provided permission to do so and you had documented that in the chart. The bottom line is that patients have a right to privacy. If you are going to breach that patient's privacy or breach confidentiality, you have to have a really good reason. So let's talk about when you would breach confidentiality. The general rule of thumb is that these reasons fall under the concept of the public good. Certain diagnoses are reportable to the local health department, even without the patient's permission. And these diagnoses include diagnoses such as sexually transmitted diseases, including syphilis, or airborne respiratory diseases such as tuberculosis. Because it is considered in the public good to know about these types of transmissible diseases, you are able to legally and ethically breach confidentiality. So in these cases, the health department would then act to notify the patient's contacts who are at risk. Another reason to breach confidentiality? Well, that would be if there was an immediate and documented threat to public safety, such as a patient who expresses homicidal thoughts during therapy. Going back to the episode on the show ER, I'm not sure if I'm remembering the episode entirely correctly, but what I remember is that the team did inform the husband, who was shocked. The team had assumed that the husband was the one who had originally contracted syphilis and then transmitted to his wife. But in the episode, it was the wife who was having an affair and contracted syphilis. It was a good episode to remind us how none of us should jump to conclusions. I'm going to present four more cases in this episode. But before I do so, I want to make sure that you know the four major ethical principles that apply to medicine and that you can define each of these principles. Autonomy is one of the most important concepts to fully understand when it comes to medical ethics and how to apply these to patient cases. Patient privacy can be considered a subset of patient autonomy. So medical ethics have been defined as key ethical principles that are applied to the practice of medicine. There are four major ethical principles that you need to learn and understand that apply to medicine. The first is what I call it's my life and my body. 
That's basically the summary of autonomy, which is the principle that an adult who is capable of rational thought is able to decide what happens to their own body. The second principle is that as physicians, our job is to help our patients. That's the basic explanation of beneficence, that a doctor must act in the patient's best interest. The next key principle is that of first do no harm. And the term for that is non-maleficence. Finally, the fourth ethical principle is that healthcare should be fair. This is defined as justice. So justice is about making our healthcare system fair and distributing medical resources in a fair manner. So these are the four major ethical principles. Again, autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. I think we all understand how important each of these principles is, but the reason that medical ethics can be so challenging is that sometimes these principles directly contradict each other. In general, if you're presented with a case on an exam though, when these principles contradict each other, autonomy will often win out in the United States. So let's see this in practice. The next case I'm going to present is one that could also make for a great episode of TV, um, you know, maybe on Grey's Anatomy. So this is the case of a 45-year-old mother of two who comes in because she has felt a breast lump. You palpate the lump, and because of your concern for breast cancer, recommend that she get a mammogram this week. The patient, however, refuses because according to her religious beliefs, if this was cancer, she wouldn't undergo treatment anyway. You speak to her at length, you determine that she is rational and she understands the potential consequences of not getting further testing. What do you do next? Would you consult the ethics committee? Would you dismiss her from your practice after providing 30-day notice due to the risk of an adverse outcome and subsequent malpractice litigation? Or would you honor her wishes to decline the mammogram? The key ethical principle underlying your response here is autonomy. And this is an important one because although as doctors, our key driving principle has often been beneficence or helping our patient, patient autonomy generally takes precedence. So in this case, two of the key features here are that the patient is an adult, that's one key point. The other is that she has the capacity to understand. On a test question, the examiners will make this clear. And in this question, it's made clear that she is rational and that she understands the consequences of not getting further testing. Under the principle of autonomy, she gets to decide what is done to her body, even if it may cause her harm. In this case, then, the correct answer is honor her wishes. Of course, you would do more than just honor her wishes. In real life and on the exam, you would schedule a follow-up visit and you might ask her to return with her spouse or a family member if she would like additional support as you explain the potential outcomes of testing versus non-testing. You might also ask to involve her religious counselor to explore further if any other options are available. Perhaps it would be acceptable to diagnose cancer and at that point, avoid chemotherapy or surgery, but would radiation therapy perhaps honor her belief system? If no treatment at all is indicated, would it still be beneficial to her to have knowledge of her cancer diagnosis, perhaps because that would allow her to prepare herself and her family? 
The bottom line is that you respect the patient's wishes because the principle of autonomy says that if it is an adult patient who has the capacity to understand, then the patient gets to decide what happens to their body. In real life and on the test, the best answer would be to go further and explore much more deeply to see if there were any other ways forward that would honor the core of her wishes while still providing medical care. You were successfully able to arrange a follow-up appointment with Mrs. Blanton and her husband, and with the input of their religious counselor, she decided that she would get a mammogram and a breast biopsy if needed. If the biopsy showed breast cancer, she would proceed with radiation therapy, but would not use chemotherapy or surgery. In order to make her wishes legally binding in case she became incapacitated in any way, she completed an advanced directive in the form of a living will in which she stated those wishes. So she specifically stated in her living will that she would not want surgery of any type for any reason. Now we come to the third question. Unfortunately, Mrs. Blanton was in a car accident and she was brought to the emergency room with a broken arm. In the ER, you explained to her that although there's a chance that the arm will heal with just a cast alone, the orthopedic surgeon is recommending surgery for the best chance of proper healing. After an explanation of the potential benefits, the risks, and the alternates, she agrees to proceed. She explains that she understands what you have explained and she would like the surgery. However, she then loses consciousness. When her husband arrives in the emergency room, he declines the surgery. He states that she has clearly indicated in her living will and to himself that she does not want any surgical procedures of any type for any reason. What do you do? Do you proceed with the surgery or do you ask the orthopedic surgeon to hold off on surgery and instead proceed with the cast or do you consult the ethics committee? This is another case that centers on that key principle of a patient autonomy, also known as it's my life and I get to choose what happens. In cases like this, honoring the patient's autonomy comes down to understanding their last known wishes. So let's call this the principle of following the patient's last known wishes. Although the patient has an advanced directive in the form of a living will, she is able to make her wishes known in the ER and therefore her last known wishes to proceed with the surgery are what should be done. The question stem made it clear that she had the capacity to understand this decision. So if you are trying to honor the patient's last known wishes, there's a progression to follow here. So the first one that you would go with, with whatever a patient with capacity is telling you. If the last known wishes were a patient who had the capacity to understand is telling you what she would like done, that's what you honor. If, however, that information is not available, then you go to a document that's known as a living will. A living will is one type of an advanced directive. And one key feature of a living will is that they are used when the patient becomes incapacitated. A patient with capacity always takes precedence over everything else. Now, if there are no advanced directives available, or if the ones that are available don't cover this particular situation, then you have to turn to somebody who is clearly familiar with what the patient would want. This is a gray area, 
But if there is documentation of some type that, let's say, a friend can produce showing what the patient would have wanted, then this can be used to indicate the patient's last known wishes. If there is no documentation or any evidence available of what the patient would have wanted, then you turn to the family. Specifically, you would turn to the spouse first, then to adult children, then to parents, then siblings. So if there, at this point, we really need to make sure that you understand the concept of advanced directives. A living will, as I mentioned, is one type of an advanced directive. So let's talk about these because they're so important. As the name suggests, advanced directives are made in advance and they direct the physician on what the patient would want. So advanced directives. These are legal documents that are filed in advance by the patient, and they specifically list the patient's wishes for health care in case the patient ever becomes incapacitated. We'll come back to determining capacity a little later. What is a living will? Well, a living will is one type of advanced directive, and it states the type of care that a patient would want or not want if they were to become incapacitated. So for example, a living will might state the patient wishes to not ever receive a feeding tube or surgery or dialysis. Living wills can state as much or as little as a patient wants, but the best ones are very specific. And again, these are legal documents. Another type of advanced directive is DNR orders, which means do not resuscitate. DNR orders state that if a patient dies, they should not be resuscitated, such as by using CPR or defibrillation. Finally, another type of advanced directive is called a durable power of attorney for healthcare. With this, a patient would identify another person who will make decisions for her if she were to become incapacitated. I want to spend a moment to just really emphasize that some patients have a lot of misconceptions about advanced directives. Politicians sometimes take advantage of this confusion to make it sound like advanced directives are the type of documents that would allow a doctor to pull the plug on a beloved family member. So it's really important for all of us to educate our patients that this is not what an advanced directive is. Instead, this is a legal document that is filed in advance by the patient. That's really the key. It outlines the patient's wishes for care at the end of their life. The patient gets to decide. These are really important documents for patients who have terminal illnesses, such as metastatic cancer, or even those who are at high risk for sudden death, such as those with severe cardiac disease. So let's go to our next case. Your patient is a 60-year-old woman who is married and has two adult children. She presents to you with a breast mass. The following week, while she is awaiting her breast biopsy, she develops a stroke and becomes incapacitated. Evaluation reveals breast cancer metastatic to the brain. One of the children states that her mom told her that she would never want a feeding tube, but the patient's husband and other child disagree. What is the next best step here? Would it be to insert the feeding tube because the husband agrees, consult the ethics committee, or request a court order? In answering this case, it's important to recognize that it's not clear what the patient's last known wishes are. The patient never made her wishes clear to you as the physician, and there are no advanced directives. 
One child states that she knows what her mother wants, but this child doesn't have any documentation. In this case, therefore, consulting the ethics committee would be the best option. An ethics committee doesn't issue binding legal judgments. Instead, their role is to help facilitate an open discussion. These committees are usually composed of some combination of doctors, nurses, administrators, social workers, lawyers, and clergy. Sometimes these committees include lay people. Their goal is to facilitate open communication and to advise providers and patients and families about making healthcare choices while really keeping what's best for the patient at the center of their discussion. They're often consulted when the doctor and the patient disagree or when different doctors disagree about the best course of treatment or when family members disagree. A court order would be used as a last resort. In previous cases, they've been used when the patient has no capacity to understand and there is serious disagreement about what to do next and consultation with an ethics committee was not helpful in resolving this disagreement. For example, there was a famous case that I still remember about the patient, Terry Schiavo. She was a 41-year-old patient who had been in a coma for 15 years. For the last seven years of her life, her husband was in conflict with her parents. Her husband stated that she had told him that she would not want to live in this state. Her parents disagreed and went to multiple different politicians and legal uh, recourses to try to keep the patient alive. Ultimately, the husband and the parents could not reach an agreement, and the case ultimately went to the courts, which then agreed with the husband, um, and the patient was allowed to die at that point. In the final case of this episode, you have an elderly patient with multiple medical problems, including diabetes, hypertension, angina, and COPD. You've had a long discussion with her about advanced directives. Although she's put off completing a living will, she does have a do not resuscitate order that you have placed on her chart. In addition, she is wearing a medical alert bracelet that indicates that she is DNR. She later presents to the emergency room with signs and symptoms consistent with a myocardial infarction. When the cardiologist is consulted and evaluates her, he refuses to do a cardiac cath because she is DNR. What is the correct next step? Don't do a cardiac cath because she's DNR or perform a cardiac cath even though she is DNR? Well, once you know what DNR means, the response to this question is actually very simple. DNR stands for do not resuscitate, so it only applies in cases where the patient has died. In other words, it only applies to measures such as CPR or defibrillation. It does not apply to surgery, cardiac cath, invasive procedures, dialysis, etc. So in this case, you would have to inform the cardiologist that yes, you should proceed with the cardiac cath. So to summarize this episode, ethical cases can be really challenging, but it's really important that you understand the major ethical principles underlying the field of medical ethics. It's important to understand 
patient privacy and confidentiality and when you would be able to breach that confidentiality. It's also important to understand what the terms autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice mean in the setting of medical ethics. It's also important to understand what advanced directives and living wills are. It's also really important to understand how to determine the patient's last known wishes and how to proceed when those last known wishes are not known. And then finally, it's, able, it's important to be able to explain what procedures are covered by a DNR order and what procedures are not. So this issue of medical ethics, these can be very challenging cases, but understanding a few of these basic principles can really be helpful. We'll cover more of these principles in a later episode, but that's it for today's episode. So thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Rajani Kata here on the USMLE Step 2 Success Podcast.